welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Howdy. Um, welcome to this meeting of Sexaholics Anonymous. Uh, my name is Troy H., and I am from San Antonio, and I'll be your facilitator for the session. I also have with me Mike C. and Harvey A., and they're going to share their ex- experience, strength, and hope um, on Honey, It's My Program. Um, please take a moment to silence your electronic devices. If you need to use yours during the meeting, please take it outside. Um, and we ask that you not make any personal recordings of this meeting or any meetings um, over the weekend. So with that, please join me in a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. All right, in the spirit of carrying the essay message, this meeting is being recorded. If you are not sure your share will be appropriate on or about the topic, please participate by listening. The recording equipment will not be turned off for any reason. If you wish to share, please speak directly into the microphone in the front um, so the listener can hear your share. Um, If you do not wish to be recorded, we invite you to participate by listening or attending another session. Please do not touch any of the recording equipment. All right, with that, um, we're the topic again is Honey, It's My Program. And um, we have Harvey and, and Mike here to ex- to share their experience, strength, and hope, and and provide us with with their wisdom. And they're going to be sharing um, each individually for ten or fifteen minutes, and then we'll open up the floor for individual questions as well as as well as sharing. So with that, I'll turn it over to you guys. Me. Hi guys, I'm Mike, recovering sexaholic. God, I'm here sober today through God's grace and new people. My sobriety date is June 3rd, 1984. Um, and I uh, have been married since September 1st, 1984. And that, that is not, uh, that, that timetable is not coincidental. <laughs> um, I, uh, I had stopped drinking for about three years. And uh, in the middle of that time, my father dropped dead suddenly of a heart attack when he was 57 years old. And the night he died, I was with the gal who is my wife today, was my girlfriend at the time, Kathy. And uh, we were downtown in Chicago out at an event. And we got home very late, about 3 in the morning. And uh, I forget who dropped us off. One of my friends dropped us off. And we were walking up the driveway to my house. And I noticed there were about 10 cars in the driveway. And there was always 10 cars in the driveway when my family was drinking but through the miracle of the 12-step program, uh, I think four to five members of my family, I had seven kids and my parents, there were nine of us, four to five of us had gotten sobered between 1980 and 1982 when my dad died. So uh, the cars had disappeared pretty much. And I remember seeing all those cars and saying to Kathy, I wonder if my grandmother died. Because every, every sibling's car is in the driveway. And we walked in and my brother said to me that my father had died. And... um I was shocked. I worshipped the ground the guy walked on, still do. And um, anyway, my mother was a stickler. Now, remember, this was pre-SA days. But uh, my mother was a stickler that, you know, you could have your boyfriend or girlfriend overnight, but the girls stayed in the girls' room and the boys stayed in the boys' room. And that night, Kathy and I crawled off to bed in my brother's room. Everybody was just all over the place because it was just chaos. And uh, my mother didn't say a word. And that night, for the first night in many, 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 many nights, I had no interest in sex. I honestly had no interest in almost anything. 
And Kathy just laid there with me the entire evening and uh, literally never opened her mouth, never said a word to me. Um, I later described it, and it's probably on some of these tapes because I've talked about this a couple times before, but I later described it as, um, I want to be left absolutely and totally alone, but please, God, don't leave me. And somehow she knew that. And I had a fleeting thought the next morning as we were going downstairs to figure out, you know, wakes and funerals and all this madness and people coming over. And, oh, my God. And uh, I had this fleeting thought, I'd like to hang around with this gal for a while. And uh, about nine months later, uh, it was summer, so it's probably more like seven or eight months later, but it was summer of the next year, and she came driving by my house. She was a Northside Irish Catholic, and I was an, a Southside Irish Catholic, so we have a mixed marriage. And um, and um, she drove from the North Side to the South Side, picked me up, and said, I'm taking you on a picnic. And I said, I don't want to go on a picnic. And she said, yeah, you don't want to do anything. You're going on a picnic. And she took me to my father's grave, and stood there and looked at it and said, he isn't here, he's risen. And she was quoting the New Testament to me. And uh, she said, and for that reason, we're having a picnic right here to celebrate that. So about three months later, I decided to ask her to marry me. It was uh, a rather uh, unconventional approach on my part. I just I had been on a retreat at my parish, and during the retreat, I had the inspiration to ask her to marry me. I borrowed my mother's car, drove to the north side, rang the bell, said to Mrs. Kathy's mother, I have to be careful, I occasionally drop names on these tapes, and it drives my wife nuts, and then it drives Lee and everybody nuts as I try to get the names off, so <laughs> try not to do it this year, Mike. But anyway... Uh, Kathy's mom answered the door, and I said, hi, where's Kathy? And she said, she isn't home. And uh, I had to sit with Kathy's parents for about an hour waiting for Kathy to come home. <laughs> it was a disaster, because my social skills still aren't very good, and they were even worse then. <laughs> but eventually, she came, and I walked her down to the park, and I said, will you marry me? And she said, sure. And then she was looking at me like she wanted something. Well, I guess there was this whole wedding ring thing, which I wasn't really, you know. And uh, but I had a I had a cigar in my pocket at the time. I smoked cigars, and I said, "I'll give her the ring off the cigar and get something better tomorrow." And I went, and the problem was that I smoked really, really cheap cigars. And if you know this, sometimes they just have the wrapping paper looks like a ring, but there's that was real cheap. Yeah, yeah, those ones. So I gave her the cigar. It still sits proudly on her dresser. <laughs> anyway, uh, we got married. Uh, but right before we got married, uh, a few months before we got married, uh, I knew that I knew before I started that my marriage was going to fail because although I had quit drinking, I had another problem that we today call lust. At the time, I called it sexual addiction. And, I, and through a sibling of mine, my older brother, I, I found SAA. And then a couple of years after that, same guy, my brother, discovered somehow, I forget how, uh, that there was another program called Essay, and, and, we, and that got brought to Chicago around 85. Um, so I was sexually sober from the time I got married. Thank God. Thank God. And I literally mean that. Thank you, God. And, um, you know, uh, sometimes they talk, I think they're called Venn diagrams or something. They talk about these things where there's you, there's your wife, and then there's the intersecting space, you know. Well, I was always big on me and the intersecting space. I thought there was a lot of we, but so much of the we was me smothering the she. <laughs> Not intentionally, but just so much that the marriage was basically about her taking care of me so that I could live my life. I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. I am 60 years old. I have never bought a pair of clothing for myself in my entire life. It was my mother and my wife. I've never bought a pair of pants. I've never bought a shirt. I don't, I, she does it all. You know, I don't cook. You know, I could be, I could fit in really well in the mid-50s. 
you know, my, my political philosophy, my theology, my program, it's all very modern, but my actual day-to-day living is out of another, another, you know. And I didn't realize for many, many years we would go through these long conversations, which Roy talks about in the White Book, were really monologues, you know, and um, working out, you know, make, trying to make decisions together. And she'd always come around to my point of view. I'd be really thrilled. And I think we had this really open conversation. And then, when it came to implementing the decision, I'd notice she, she wouldn't do it. We, I mean, we would have terrible arguments about this. You agreed to this, and you didn't do it. So after a few years, uh, we got into therapy. Now, I don't want, I don't want to, uh, make this sound like it was just something we decided to do. We got into therapy for the same reason I got into these programs. My life was at stake. One day, my wife and I got in an argument, the details of which aren't very important except to say that the details weren't very important. But at the time, I thought they were the most important thing in the world. And I walked into the bathroom and said to my wife, if you don't something, and I don't remember what it was, I'm going to kill you. And my eight-year-old son walked in and stood between his mother and myself to protect his mother from me. And the next morning, as I rolled over in bed, my wife said to me, she didn't say, honey, it's my program or whatever the title is. She said to me, every time you talk to me that way, a piece of my love for you dies. Which was a pretty courageous thing to say. And uh, about 24 seconds later, we were in therapy. And uh, and I learned a mantra there, which also actually ironically comes from the New Testament, and it, and it was, she must increase, I must decrease. And I've been working on that for the last 15 years, and, and honestly done a relatively decent job, but also done a good enough job to know how much more of a job I still have to do. Um, in my case, uh, you know, and some of this is my wife's stuff and my wife's work, but as the title says, that's her program. Um, you know, I think she'd have told me anything she thought I wanted to hear for many, many years. And, and I was a part of that and she was a part of that and we were a part of that because it is my program and her program, but it's our marriage. And, and for me to figure out what was mine, what was hers and what was ours was very, very difficult. And, uh, you know, I've never told this story before, but about 10, a little less than 10 years ago, we had this falling down garage. Very nice house, but this garage literally falling down. That was, that raccoons were living in the roof of our garage because there was a little loft up there. And we figured out that raccoons were living up there. And in this, and, and we had two different neighbors complain about the raccoons. So we thought we got to do something about the raccoons. But then we had a daughter who's, you know, vegetarian and, you know, you think I'm left. She's, she's left a mile say tongue, you know. And, and she was like, you can't kill the raccoons. You have to get a company that will not kill the raccoons. So I at least got a company that said they didn't kill the raccoons. And I don't know if they killed them or not. And I didn't want to know. I just wanted to be able to honestly say to my daughter, this group says they take them and put them in the forest preserve, honey. So anyway, we had the traps up on, on the roof to satisfy the next door neighbors who were worried their kids would be harmed by the raccoons. And then we got a notice uh, from the city that some other neighbors had called to complain that we were being cruel to animals. <laughs> so we had, we had both sides. And finally we realized it's time to tear down the garage, spend some of your hard-earned money and get a new garage. But I was terrified because this meant interacting about what kind of garage do you want? How much money do you want to spend? What do you want it to look like? Would you mind if we had a basketball hoop on it? This meant full-scale marital negotiations. Am I terrified? Yes. Am I sober, sexually sober 20 years and still terrified? Yes. Um, and it turned out to be one of the best experiences we ever had because I, I decided... I'm, I'm, uh, my wife's a great, the baseball analogy would be this. My wife's a great starting pitcher, but I'm the closer. Because my wife is an idea person. She's edited a magazine for years. She'd talk about ideas endlessly, 
But when it comes time to say, okay, but we actually got to pick one of these, not really that good at it. And I don't really care that much. I just want to get it done. And somehow, really for the first time, we went through this whole process, decided to re-landscape the whole backyard. My original idea, exact replica of Wrigley Field, got vetoed early. <laughs> and and um, it was all dialogue. It It was all that center in the Venn diagram. Here's what I want. Here's what you want. Where can we meet in the middle? And and there was no sabotage on my wife's part because I hadn't really... All these conversations I thought I was having over the years where she was agreeing with me, she was only agreeing with me because I wouldn't shut up until she did. I could. It's like where it says, and I think it's in the big book somewhere, it says we could be nice about it, we could be mean about it, we could be this, we could be that, but we were trying to run the show still. The third and fourth step. And um, this was different. We built a garage without a fight. And I'm telling you, it was an absolute miracle. Um, I also started uh, dealing with my anger, dealing with my rage. I've been dealing with my rage for the last 15 years um, because I wouldn't rage often, but when I did, and it was never physical. I shouldn't say that there was one time I grabbed my son and then my wife grabbed me and then I grabbed her, so it was physical once. But the emotional abuse that my wife had to put up with in recovery was not good. And it might have only happened three or four times a year, but those three or four times a year, the, the aftershock or the hangover would last, you know, a month uh, or more. And so I had to learn that part of my that if I really wanted her to increase and really wanted me to decrease, I had to learn to shut my mouth every single time I was upset. And have I have I been a hundred percent successful or as Jess would say, sober in that? No. But I've probably about eighty five to ninety percent better. And then in the last two years, it took me a long time to figure this out. Because one of my favorite words starts with F and ends with K. It's a four letter word. You may have heard of it. I love that word. I I had to stop using it. Maybe in jest once in a while, but I had to stop. I had to notice that the first time I used it, it meant I was about, if I hadn't already, I was on the way to verbal abuse, either of her, somebody else, or even just sitting by myself at my computer. You would not believe the, many, uh, the number of rage attacks I've had at my computer which is primarily a function of refusing to learn how to properly use it because that's what wives and children are for. But anyway, <laughs> another problem with the Venn diagram that I still have to work on. Um, and again, have I been perfect in eliminating the F word from my vocabulary? No, but I've gone through some period. When I first I started, I simply was told, count how many times a day you say it. Don't even try to stop. Just count how many times a day you say it. And it was incredible. So when I was having a good day, I would be having like 13. That was a really good day. Only 13 F-bombs today. You know, that's about, what, one, one an hour maybe, a little less. Now, I never thought there would come a day where there'd be zero. And now there's days all the time where I don't use the word. Or there's more days where I use it once or twice and realize it and stop using it for the rest of the day. And I haven't used it in anger at my wife in years. Now, she's not here, so she might flag me on that and say, well, you did once or twice. But basically, it has been eliminated. Um, so for me, one side of this is I had to step back if I ever wanted her to step up. And, you know, we don't talk much about sex and marriage. Um, we started to about, I don't know, was it about 10 years ago or something when Harvey called me down to Nashville and then told me he thought it was really important that we talked about sex and marriage. And I thought we were giving the talk, and then I found out I was giving the talk. What a rat. <laughs> um, but it, it was the same thing there. I'd be thinking, why am I always the initiator? Why am I always this and I'm always that? There was no room for this woman. There was no room until I got out of the way. So we spent years where I would go for months and just say, 
If if you want something to happen there, let me know. I'm out of it. And then we spent years where we'd alternate weeks where not just sex, but where we take Saturday night, your night. What are you planning? Dinner, movie, whatever. Sex sometimes, sometimes not. That was a new concept too. The sun sometimes not. And you know. Today, you know, we were talking in the last session, uh, it was an old-timer session, but we got into control and fear versus love, you know, and and today I still want to control things so much, and I still get so fearful sometimes, and if I have an idea about the way a day is supposed to go, I'm very organized. I could literally tell you my calendar from now through June. I could go through every day in my head and tell you, at 9 o'clock on January 22nd, I'm supposed to be here. My wife is very spontaneous. And I see her spontaneity as a threat to my calendar, and she sees my calendar as an oppressive threat to her spontaneity. (laughs) And, And so we're always negotiating this. And that's getting better, too. A few years ago, I said, do I got a week off? Why don't you plan it? And I'd wait every day in the morning for the plan. There was no plan. She'd just say around 10, 11 o'clock, let's go out for a walk. And the next thing I know, it would be 6 o'clock at night, and I'd have the best day I'd had in 20 years because I didn't have to do anything except walk around and talk to the only person in the world I really want to talk to all day, every day anyway. So I don't know if there's any particular rhyme or reason to this. Um, I'm just trying to share a little bit of my own experience of trying to grow up in my marriage. And most of that for me meant stepping back, uh, uh, which has nothing to do with being a patsy or nothing to do with not getting my needs met or anything. It just had to learn, I just had to learn to make room for her. And, um, I've told this story before, but about four years ago, we had a very traumatic situation in which my daughter, as a junior in high school, uh, going to the same high school that my wife went to, there was rumors that the school was going to close, and we put a great effort into it to, to save the school, and we're told that the school had been saved and that the next year, was, her senior year, would be fine and everything. And then the folks who ran the school, without telling anybody, just did a flip. And I got a call in my office from my wife one day, and she said, they're closing the school at the end of the year. And I can't tell you what I said, but it had something to do with that word I mentioned earlier so loudly that I terrified my entire office. And uh, anyway, I had been invited by a guy who is a, uh, I'm a, I'm a rules expert. I'm a major league baseball rules expert. And I work with a guy and we work with about 10 major league teams. And I'd been invited down to spring training to do rule seminars with some of these teams, which to me is like being in heaven while you're still alive. It's a good deal. And um, But there was this big meeting about the school and whether we could do anything to save the school. And I was kind of looked to as the go-to guy on this thing. And my wife came to me and said, uh, as I was torn, like, I don't want to miss this opportunity, but I'm responsible to my daughter and to these committees and blah, blah, blah. And my wife came to me and said, "You go down to Florida for spring training. I've got this. I've got this meeting." And I'm, I'm honestly thinking, she's a great gal, but she's not a public speaker. She doesn't know this. She doesn't know that. So she said, "No, trust me on this." I said, "Okay." And then I started writing notes up for her. <laughs> and she took my notes, and she not, nothing ruder, and she put them down. And she said, "I know what we need to do for our daughter, and I'm going to do it." Please trust me. And uh, so I'm down in Florida doing my thing, having a ball. And then that night I'm dreading the call. I'm staying at a fellow SA member's place down in Florida. And I'm dreading the call from my wife. And she called and told me that, she I won't go into the detail, but she she did a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous job. She didn't need me for one second of it. And over the course of the next two weeks, I heard so many different people from that community come and tell me what a great job she did. And then, a few days later, she's making some posters. <laughs> this is my wife who's, you know, not the most assertive person who ever walked the face of the earth. She's making these posters, and uh, 
I said, what are you doing? She says, I'm heading over to school. I'm going to sit in front of the building today for a silent one-woman protest. And I said, you're kidding me. She said, no, you want to come along? And I said, okay. So the two of us sat there with these posters basically saying, sisters, please keep your promise and a couple other things. And uh, and uh, before I got there, I couldn't come right at the beginning. The, the gal who ran the school, who my wife had known for 40 years, called the police on my wife. And we didn't know what it was. When she told me, we both were in hysterics. Like, I wanted to be angry, but it was just so funny that someone would call. I had been called the police on maybe a few times, but my wife. And uh, and then all these girls from the school came out after school and sat with us. And it was just, I won't go on and on with it, but it was just, it was an awesome experience to see what what a strong, strong woman I had married and how much of that I had missed because I got in my own way, I got in her way, and in that middle, I got in our way. And how in recovery, slowly but surely, as I was able to pull that diagram back and realize this stuff's all mine, that stuff's all hers, and yes, there's a middle, but we're never going to find the real middle if I think the middle is me somehow dominating her, whether I'm doing it on purpose or not, and for the most part I wasn't, but I was doing it. And, 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 you know, it took me back to a time in 1980 before I was sober from alcohol. I was a seminarian studying to be a Catholic priest and I was also dating Kathy and this was causing some problems for a number of people and institutions. <laughs> and, um, I had, uh, seen her at an event and was suggesting to her that you know, we might have a future, and she was, and her brother had just died three weeks prior uh, of cancer at the age of 35. I was so self-centered. It wasn't that I didn't care about her brother. I was at the funeral and this and that, but we were officially broken up because I was in the seminary. And here I am talking on and on about our future together. And this woman at the age of 23 looked at me, and you know, it could have been with resentment, which would have been appropriate. It could have been with hostility, which would have been appropriate. And just said, my brother's dead. I have no energy for this right now. I have no energy for you right now. I may someday. I just don't know. But I don't right now. And I drove her home and drove back to the seminary. Here I am at this beautiful campus, thousand-acre campus for the archdiocese, these beautiful neoclassical buildings all around me. I'm driving some priest's borrowed car to go see my girlfriend. <laughs> and I got to the middle of what we call Principal Avenue, put the car in park, and screamed her name out loud for about ten straight minutes. She'd been strong all along. That's what drew me to her. That's why I wanted to marry her. And then I almost lost it all sober because I just had more sober to get, and I still do, and with that I pass. Thank you, Mike. We didn't give a shit what our wives wanted when we were out there. It wouldn't have mattered when they caught us, when we had problems with them, we just kept doing our thing. By the way, I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. Hey, Harvey. Been sexually sober 33 years and 10 months. We just didn't give a crap. But all of a sudden, we get sober. And then whatever they say, we shiver and shake. First of all, we're afraid if we don't say the right thing or do the right thing, we won't get laid that night. <laughs> For those who still are living with their wives. That again, Mike described it beautifully. You know? Selfishness, self-centeredness, that is the core of our problem. 
driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking. We step on the toes of others and they retaliate. So all of a sudden, whatever they say, you're going to too many meetings, you're ignoring me, don't go to so many meetings. You're not paying enough attention to the kids. Don't be on the phone so much. My sponsor helped me early on. Who but a sick woman would have ever stayed married to you, Harvey? I can't hardly live with myself. Can you imagine what it's like to be someone else? Try to live with me? Besides, and for many of us who accept this myth, and I do, that there was an original man, and he got divided, and part of him became a woman, and he was a man, and that we spend our lives trying to get completed again. So we become complete through this sacred relationship. But the minute we find this person who is our other half, which means we're usually attracted to people who are our opposites, the moment we meet them and marry them, guess what happens? We try to change them into the way we are. We're attracted to the opposite. And then we spend our life trying to make them who we are. Gets very complicated. And then all kinds of control issues come in. And guess what? They're doing the same thing. (laughs) So they're trying to change us into what they are. And then the whole divine pattern gets kind of screwed up again. Love thy neighbor as thyself. By the way, it's only taken me 34 years in AA and 33 in SA to finally see that that was written in the AA book, in a vision for you. I always thought it was only in Torah. Jesus says in the New Testament, that's all, yeah. It's, no, it's 12 step. <laughs> so if we don't love ourselves, meaning staying well as the main priority of our lives, then how can we love our spouses? So here we are dealing with sick people also, who are seeing things from their point of view having difficulty accepting the same thing we have difficulty accepting, that we're very ill people. Let me tell you, I'm 78. I've been around. I just have never met people sicker than essayers. I'm not kidding. (coughs) And it's very important for me Because I was taught in AA, if you ever want to know who you are, look at who you hang around with. Before I came in the program, I was a street person. I had a suit and a tie and a professional title. But I hung around with street people, prostitutes, the lower part of town, Now I'm in recovery. I hang around other recovery people. So we get our wives 
who have many, many distorted issues. I was watching it, and a lot of times they're right, but it's from their perception. So today someone was asking my wife and me a question. She gave a wonderful answer. As an astronaut, my answer was totally different from a total different perspective. As an essayer, I can't expect her. It would be too frightening for her to ever realize how utterly sick I am. I'm a psychotic person who's not acutely psychotic. I, I get visual hallucinations. You all have heard me say this all the time. I see a woman dressed and I see her private places. She's dressed, but I don't see that. I hear her say, hello, Harvey. But I don't hear that. I hear, let's go have sex. Get an auditory hallucination. I see a guy walking down the street. I see him with an erection. I don't know why it happens. It just happens. I hallucinate. I'm insane. Just like the big book says. If we're restored to sanity, we have to be insane. But I get a daily reprieve. But how do I get that daily reprieve? By taking daily medication. If I don't go to a certain amount of meetings a week after all these years, you don't want to know me. I get caustic. I get irritable. I put out vibes that, God, I had a boss once who he must have been 6'4", and he gave me a rough time. And I had no idea after finally got a lawyer over it. This, all this wonderful prayer stuff. I go to the chapel every day and pray for his health, wealth, and happiness and all this stuff. And finally, Jess helped me. I got a damn lawyer. One letter from the lawyer cut all that crap out. But ultimately, what did I discover? That this six foot four guy, was terrified of this little guy. The vibes I can put out for my anger and my vibes are unbelievable. And I don't even know it's happening. I'm very sick. I need lots of of medication. I need many phone calls a day. I used to masturbate every few hours. I need a call every few hours. Some of us are sicker than others. I'm a sick man. My wife cannot relegate how much medication I need. That's not her problem. That's my problem. If I let her regulate my med medication needs. If I had diabetes and I needed to take my insulin. And my wife says, go take care of the kids first. You can take your insulin later today. Man, if I listened to that, I could die within a few hours. But why doesn't this hit people? Because most people in the program will not accept they're sick. That they have a true brain disorder. That our limbic system, our hypothalamus, is not like normal people. 
those areas in that part of the brain. Anger, fear, thirst, liquor, eating, food disorders, and reproduction, sex. Live in this one little spot in the brain. It's screwed up in my brain. A man rather think he's bad than sick. Our masculine image rather think I'm bad than I'm not normal. By the way, Bill and Bob was saying this stuff before the scientists discovered it. You know, 12 and 12. Who wants to say they're not normal, however it's written? So no, wife and no wife, job and no job. i got to take my medication. I had no home life my first few years. I was going to three meetings a day. They were AA predominantly, and then we had one AA, one SA meeting finally a week, and then it got more and more. I was basically non-functional for years. I did my work between my meetings. After about two years, I was able to get down to two meetings a day for years. Now I need the minimum of four or five meetings a week and phone calls all the time. Now, is this a hopeless issue? No. I'm able now to close my phone most evenings at five o'clock, have dinner with my wife, cuddle and watch television, and maybe she falls asleep a lot of times early. I'll pick up the calls later, but I'm on the phone when I'm not working all day long. It does get better. I need less medication than I used to need. And I'm lust-free today. I don't lust. It's been removed. But boy, do I know I'm still shows up in my dreams. <laughs> it shows up in those first thoughts. Those first thoughts are still there. They just have no power. So they don't turn into lust. You know, Jess would say, the first thought is on God. The next thought is on me. <laughs> and it's something, maybe later this evening I'll talk about it, it's something our program will not emphasize because we're a bunch of religious fanatics. We used religion often to control the other part of us. Yeah, we're extremists, most of us who come here. But that's okay. I don't mind being an extremist. However, I... That type of me ends up distorting the 11th step because it makes me emphasize prayer. Bullcrap. If prayer worked so well, why the hell did I need to come here to begin with? What happens to the word meditation in our program? When's it even spoken about? Meditation. What does that really mean? It means what Jess was talking about. Mindfulness. Part of meditation. Mindfulness. Oh, there's that thought. That, that was on God. Oh, there it goes. Just let it swim out like it swam in. Because my brain never stops producing thought. It's endless. It's a river that never stops. Only difference at night it's happening, but we don't notice all the thoughts as much in the daytime. We're up 
And what does a sexaholic do? They get this thought. They think it's real when it's really just electronic impulses. And they grab it. And then they nurse it and they nurture it and they build it. And then they act out. And our fellowship rarely ever even talks about the 11th step, except sometimes in religious, all this God talk, God's will. We've been chosen by a system of people who wrote the book who had to have been divinely inspired. Two years sobriety and they write a book like that. Roy, with a few years, I got 33 years. It's hard to imagine someone with the years he had writing a book. I first now get some of the insights he was writing about when he had four or five years sobriety. These people, if I cannot disagree on some of this, but some of these people are inspired. You can't tell me this guy isn't inspired for baseball. He's been divinely touched. He could tell me day in and day out I wouldn't be able to remember one rule. Jess would say this all the time about humility. Humility is not denying our gifts, but admitting them. Because if we don't admit our gifts, how can we thank the one who gave them to us? So he'd say part of his humility is he was a famous author who wrote books for a million people or whatever it is. So to end, my watch stopped. (laughs) To end, be careful. Don't make your wife God. It doesn't work well. As soon as you make your wife God, you've blocked God. That doesn't mean God doesn't choose our wives to talk through. And my old AA sponsor would help me with that by using a term when she would say something to me that was ugly, ridiculous. And I'd say, instead of shut up or that's stupid, I'd say, you might be right. You might be right. And lo and behold, an hour later, I start saying, gee, maybe she does have a point. And then it becomes my idea, and then it's okay. The minute it was her idea, that was bad news. How dare her tell me what to do? Doesn't she know who I am? So, honey, leave my program alone. My wife does not want me working her program. Boy, did she get annoyed. And my sponsor taught me this other great prayer. Yes, I do use prayer at times. And the prayer goes, God, Help me keep my mouth shut. God, help me keep my mouth shut. God, help me keep over and over. And as many of you have heard, I was with my oldest son and his wife, his first wife. I've lost track. We've had so many wives. My sons, I've lost track. But we were at dinner, and all through the dinner I'm saying, oh, there's a Utah section. Um, We... All through the dinner, I'd say, God, keep my mouth shut. God, keep my mouth shut. God, keep my mouth shut. And he and I are walking out the restaurant. 
And he looks at me with this great love and sincerity. He said, Dad, this is the best conversation we've ever had. (laughs) You talk about humility. (laughs) On that, I shut up. All right, guys, we've come to the close of our of our meeting, and I um, want to say thank you to both of you for everything that you do for our sobriety. And um, with that, um, unfortunately, there's no time for, for questions, but I'm sure that you guys That's will never have... never happened before. <laughs> I'm sure you guys will be able to find them, and, and they'll answer all your questions. Um, so with that, in closing, anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. Um, The principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. Remember that we never identify ourselves publicly with SA in the press, radio, TV, social media, or films. Neither does anyone speak for SA. This is an anonymous program. Please keep the name, address, phone number, and anyone you meet or learn about in SA to yourself. The shares we have heard here are told in confidence. Please do not repeat what you have heard about another member to anyone who was not actually here at this meeting at this time that was shared. Please, what we say here, when we leave here, let it stay here. Here, here. All right, let's um, let's circle up and we'll close with a serenity prayer. listening to this episode of the Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.